Do you think that because you know the American, you know, pop psychology is like, oh, be yourself, be authentic, find your enjoyment, integrate into the social order. Like you know, if you if you're having trouble, if you're maladaptive, if you're not uh, integrating, then you need therapy, and then we can integrate you back in somehow. And in a part of what it might be doing, you know, it, it might have. Do you think it might have inter- uh, inherited that early Freud a little bit, where it's just kind of like, yeah, people want their own happiness. They want to. They want. They want a pleasurable life. So the goal is to get them there, and we'll we'll get down to their authentic self, and then they'll be able to do it. So I'm so glad you said that. Um, I meant to bring this up earlier, but mm. you remember in the Jordan Peterson uh, Zizek debate. There was one thing that they both agreed on, and it's that the it's that happiness is bullshit as the end all be all to life. And you know, Peterson is a Jungian, Zizek is a Lacanian, but I have to wonder if the the secret of, uh, the, the agreement is actually based on their their understanding of death drive because if ha- happiness as we fantasize about the idea of being happy it's really a life without any tension right of perfect satisfaction perfect prolonged satisfaction and the Freudian psychoanalytic insight would be well that ain't happening um, death drive is here to stay remember Lacan said it's ontological <clears throat> and now even Freud suggests that it's even primary so the idea of human beings reaching some sort of blissful state of perfect balance and tensionlessness is completely mythological from mm. the perspective of psychoanalysis. And despite their many differences, I kind of think that's why both Peterson and Zizek reject the concept of happiness. Totally. Because here's the thing. Really, if you're happy, it's just a stroke of luck. It's not something you can actually work towards. It's something you really don't have control over. There are times in your life that, based on the certain situation, you could say, yeah, I'm actually happy at this point in my life. But it's beyond your control, and it's uh, it's a matter of chance and luck. And the idea that we're all just supposed to work towards uh, happiness, like it's something that we can just reach and then uh, perpetually sustain, that is absurd from the perspective of death drive our very libidinal economies are based on undermining our pleasure and here's the thing right in our example earlier even if you have prolonged pleasure that's not good enough to you like like i said you could be in a relationship and it can be on paper a good relationship you i have trust you have reliability you have a, a strong bond and yet not good enough that pleasure that happiness isn't enough Mm-hmm. And so it's like you have to – that's part of our tragedy of being the kind of beings that we are. And so I'm of – I agree with uh, – I hate to agree with Peterson on anything, but I do. I agree with him and Zizek that I don't think happiness is the right goal for human right, beings. Right. I think freedom or equality or um, you know, solidarity, I think these are much more important, better aims for society because I think those involve actual structural dynamics that we could potentially accomplish whereas happiness is again it's so chance based that it's really not a good 
aim. R- right. Well, and, and you know, and the idea that you know the U.S. is supposedly founded on the the right the the, the right to the pursuit of happiness. Right. It's like, mm-hmm. which was originally going to be written as property, the right of property. And like, so the idea of like the, 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 that these two words were interchangeable for them, right? The, the right to property is how John Locke wrote about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But like, that was like, that, that is classical liberal ideology to its like core is the idea that you as an individual can reach your own happiness in the pursuit of property uh, through the game of one-upmanship in an economy. And, uh, it's pure ideology. I mean, that's the thing, right? If we take Zizek's concept of ideology, or at least how he formulates it at one point, ideology is that which uh, conceals or covers over a deadlock or an impossibility, right? And really, I mean, psychoanalysis would say being happy is an impossibility at the very ontological level. And yet, that's what ideology is always trying to sell us. So. To sell us the idea of happiness is really to convince us that we can become a being that we aren't. Like a different, we can have a whole different ontology, right? And uh, which, of course, is impossible. So the, the, the ideology of happiness is very much a rejection of our fundamental ontology. And I mean, of, of course, like, obviously there's better situations to live in, right? And some people would reject what we're saying here because they would have a different concept of happiness. Fair enough, right? Some people would have a much more realistic concept of happiness, and that's fine. But the way the concept of happiness generally works and the way especially consumer society sells it to us is that if we work hard, we will eventually reach this state of like perfect, prolonged satisfaction where... It's like we've bought the, the the last commodity we need and like, oh, now I've got everything I want. And, and, and the idea of happiness being actual perfect satisfaction in having everything you want. You realize like that would be the end of desire? This is- we, are, we, are, we are desiring subjects. Desire is this, I mean, without desire, we're not even human being anymore. This so is- happiness is really this image of us not being human beings. Exactly. Yeah, this is where Fight Club comes in, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, you've got you've got the you've got all the things. You've got all the stuff. Uh, it's all it's all in order. You're you're not just successful, but you're like living a life of pleasure, and ha- you've you've achieved it. The narrator um, Edward Norton has everything that society says he needs to have a good life, and he does. He has job security. Uh, he has a good paycheck. He has a great apartment. He's filled it with what Baudrillard calls the system of objects, which is all of the consumer goods that are idiosyncratic that you use to give yourself a sense of individuality, right? He's got he's got the whole thing, and yet he's miserable. And who is Tyler? What is Tyler's? What does he say to him when they're, uh, you know, the narrator's on the bus with Tyler, and he looks at the ad of I think it's Calvin Klein of the male model. And he looks at Tyler and he goes, is that what a man looks like? And uh, Tyler says, self-improvement is masturbation, right? Like the idea of self-improving to this, the way that society tells you to is bullshit. But what does he say? Now self-destruction, right? So Tyler really embodies death drive, right? The whole thing is he's trying to blow apart uh, the narrator's consumer identity, his position in this world, and this is what we mean, uh, Lacanians mean by symbolic death, right? You want to die 
you want to die away from your social position, right? Again, we've talked about it before when we, you know, when we talk Heidegger, where if your whole, if you are a piano player and that's been your project your whole life and you're in a horrible accident and uh, you tragically lose your hands, right? Your whole world, it's not just the tragedy of this horrible thing happening to your body. Of course, there's that. But it's also the fact that you can't be the person you once were within your world. And so it's not just that you lose parts of your body, you lose your very self. And that, in that situation, is absolutely a tragedy. But there's times where your symbolic position, your who you are in your world, is precisely the tragedy. And death drives what can help us break out of these these allotted positions, these allotted identities in society. And so this is where death drive actually takes on a very positive revolutionary force because it frees us from our social facticity, from the social basic uh, coordinates we're thrown into in, in our little world. And so in a weird sense, we'll see it's actually the motor of freedom. And so this is why I said early on, we don't want to think death drive as bad and pleasure as good. They both can be bad and good, depending on the scenario. And right, death, death drive can be liberating. Yeah, absolutely. And pleasure can be imprisoning. Again, mm. think about it. like somebody who's in a relationship and you go down all the lists of what usually define the good, healthy criteria of a relationship. And if you can mark yes to all of them, you can say, oh, see, I, I, you know, I'm living in happiness. I'm living in pleasure. I've got a good relationship. And yet still that pleasure, it feels like a prison you want out of. Mm. And so, again, it just depends on the, uh, the specific so uh, are we just are we just cursed then to like to constantly self undermine any good situation we do find ourselves in? Is that a that's, is that a conclusion? I mean that's part of it, and so part of what we'll see is that we often fight our death drive, and obviously for you know there's good reasons sometimes, but we act like it's not a part of us or it's something we can get away from, and part of psychoanalysis. Of course, it wants to help alleviate some of the problems generated by death drive, but it also wants us to learn to kind of, I, I mean, we can't really identify with it, but it, we can face up to the fact that this this impulse is part of us, and it's just, there's no getting rid of it. And once you become aware, I mean, at first when you start thinking in terms of death drive, it's most easy to see it at work in the people you're close with, right? Your, your family, your friends. Once you start to get an idea now, of how this, this thing works, here, you'll start to see it at work in everybody's lives around you. I see it in everybody. But it's like you as you as a psyche, right? This thing is positioned in your blind spot, right? I, I, McGowan emphasizes this, and they all emphasize this uh, unconscious aspect of death ride. It's not like you're in control of it. It's more it's in control of you. And... Um, there's I'm so glad you said that. So, I'm so fucking glad you said that because I just feel like, like it's like the un like so many so much so much of the time when you're watching like you know media critique or ideology critique kind of stuff kind of in that vein, people think that everything's happening at this conscious explicit level as though that's yeah, 
Well, at and, least, and, and the thing is, is like, maybe we don't always know, but, but, but for sure, like we should be less certain. That's the big thing is I, I just like the, the lack of, uh, epistemological humility, like sometimes because it's like, well, I think the natural conclusion of, of everything we're talking about is that like, it should be a little less, tr less transparently obvious that we can be so certain of why we do the things that we do like that. And that's that, that, that uncertainty I think is, I wouldn't say it's liberating, but it's, uh, it's important to get that kind of critical distance from not just yourself, but how you perceive reading intent into other people and stuff like that, which is why, why this is, you know, this is, this is useful, I think for a kind of a structuralist approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is why I, everybody's you know, which is why like you know, Zizek says the only way that you can be a Marxist anymore is if you're a Lacanian. Yeah, and the part this is why I think it's so important, um, and I mean we could even touch on this briefly because I think it's so good. Actually, here let me grab the quote. It's nice. it's what we we were reading the other day, and so McGowan has this awesome book called The End of Dissatisfaction, Jacques Lacan and the Emerging Society of Enjoyment, and. Um, this is why Zizek says this, uh, says that about, oh, you know, if you're going to be a Marxist today, you got to go through Lacan. There's various different reasons why he says it, but I think McGowan really gets at something important, and it very much what Zizek uh, has in mind here, too, which is uh, on page four of this book, McGowan says, Though Marxism has certainly fallen on hard times today, this fundamental thesis of Marxism hasn't. Okay, well, that's we need context. But uh, he comes down later and he says, um, But if Marx errs, his error does not lie, as his critics often allege, in underestimating innate human selfishness. Right? That's the whole capitalist. I mean, capitalists are always going, Oh, Marx is dumb because he thinks like... Uh, people can be all non-selfish and he doesn't understand that humans are intrinsically selfish and egotistic and that's why communism can never work, right? We've all heard that right. a million times. But this is like the psychoanalytic response to Marx. Uh, again, I'll read it again. Um, but Marx errors. His error does not lie, as his critics often allege, in underestimating innate human uh, selfishness. Instead, his error and again, it is the common error today, lies in the other direction. In underestimating the capacity of subjects to act against their self-interest. Right? The idea with Marx is, oh, you know, there's the bad ideas that have been implanted in workers' minds, and he called it ideology or false consciousness. Right. And if we just explain how capital works and show workers how they're being exploited, how they're being fucked over, then they will see that overthrowing the system is what is in all of their self-interest and will have the proletarian revolution. And the problem is Marx is thinking only in terms of pleasure, right? He doesn't have this idea of, well, the big problem is that workers might very well enjoy their exploitation. That's what's difficult for all of us leftists to deal with. But that's why Zizek thinks Understanding the libidinal economy is essential for the left because 
we always think that like oh if, if we just show if we can break the simulation in Baudrillard's terms or we can show them like what's going on behind bullshit ideological mystifications if we can get them to the truth then they'll all act in their self-interest and the point is people don't act in their self-interest by and large uh i mean right. and that's death drive right and so this impulse to act against your self-interest is explained by psychoanalysis and for Zizek, Lacan does it better than anybody. And so that's why he thinks libidinal economy is essential to understanding political economy, right? Because the idea is people are doing certain behaviors on a daily basis and we call this the economy. And it's not just a matter of self-interest that's at play, it's how they're constantly undermining themselves and so to understand how the economy works, we have to understand how libido or jouissance, death drive, works too. Mm. And so that's why Zizek has spent so much of his career talking about how, you know, his, his famous, uh, the, the, uh, his second book that he put out. It's called, uh, For They Know Not What They Do, Enjoyment as a Political Factor, right? It's jouissance as a political factor. I did not know about this book. Yeah, so a lot of people actually think it's better than Sublime Object because it's, it's actually more theoretical. And what? it was a series of lectures he gave to, I think, post-grad students or something. So he didn't feel like he had to dumb it down at all. Um, it, it's more difficult, I think, than uh, Sublime Object. But anyway, the, but that, here's the thing. That uh, subtitle could have been the same subtitle, you know, it could have been the subtitle for Sublime Object of Ideology, Enjoyment as a Political Factor. And so he, his point oh, is I'm that... Actually, I'm waving around a copy here, and by the way, everybody, it is signed. It is signed yeah. by Slavoj Zizek. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, uh, anyway. so that, that's the idea, is that to, for us to understand how politics works, how the economy works, we have to understand how libidinal economy works because they're intertwined. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, cool. I guess the only, the, the only quote I want to read from Freud before we move on to Lacan is uh, this is from, and this is just so relevant, right? Um, this is how he ends civilization and its discontents. <clears throat> he says, The fateful question for the human species seems to me to be whether and to what extent their cultural development will succeed in mastering the disturbance of their communal life by the human instinct drive of aggression and self-destruction. It may be that in this respect, precisely the present time deserves a special interest. He's talking about this, uh, this drive we have and for him, he's thinking about it in terms of aggression and self-destruction. He's saying this in light of, you know, the development of nuclear weapons. Remember, this is in 1929. Hmm. And so we're headed into that World, uh, World War II period. Hmm. And he's getting very nervous because he's seeing all of the technological uh, machinations of, of humankind. And he's getting really worried because he's seeing... You know, technology keeps developing. Humanity could actually bring about its own extinction. And with climate change and everything, it's even more relevant now. And um, 
that I mean, it, it sounds crazy at first, but you start going, do we enjoy our destruction of the planet? Are, are we actually libidinally invested in it and somehow? That's a very frightening thought because again, like McGowan says, right? The Marxist idea is you point out to people what's in their self-interest, they register what's in their self-interest, and then they begin to act in their self-interest. But think of how many people, how many people have tried to explain to climate deniers the facts, the situation, and they just totally reject it. And it gets to a point where you go, something else is going on here because they're not, you know, it's easy to just call them stupid, but it's not a matter of intelligence. Something else is involved here. And it's oftentimes jouissance, it's, it's enjoyment. They enjoy transgressing the law, going against the norms. They enjoy um, uh, not being part of the system. Like That's what's so troubling is that oftentimes we think that these, these political positions, these political identities are rooted solely in misunderstandings. Like, oh, if we could just reach them, if we could just get them to see what's really going on. No, what you realize is that so much of ideology doesn't have to do with meaning or concepts or uh, facts or anything like that. It has to do with how people get off on, uh, it's how people enjoy themselves. And so once you realize that, it's like Zizek's point is, you have to start taking a different approach in how you try to mobilize people because if you point out self-interest, right, here is what is rational, here is what is good, here is what is lawful, here is what is in your self-interest, there's a part of people that are going to want to go against that just because, right? Because going against the law, going against what's good for us is means enjoyment. That's how the unconscious thinks, right? Uh, that's the logic of the unconscious. And again, if... if if we could mobilize the left into a unified force in the world, like by pointing out self-interest to people, then we would have done that a long time ago. We, we, mm -hmm. we as leftists of all kinds realize, like, why is this so fucking hard to just get people to do what's good for them? Yeah. And this is what Zizek is, has is one of his great insights. And what I think he has to teach us being on the left is yeah, there is this other thing going on. And I think anybody who's been, you know, an activist or an organizer knows all too well that this shit is happening. Yeah, like the the one joke that you use, that Zizek uses, right? Um, About the, the genie. The genie, yeah. So do that. The joke goes like this. Um, imagine uh, there's a guy and he's walking along minding his business and then all of a sudden a magical genie appears to him and says hey I'm a magical genie and I am here to grant you whatever your heart desires you get one wish and here's the catch though whatever you choose for yourself whatever you uh, wish I'm gonna do that double to your neighbor and so the guy sits there for a minute and he contemplates and he thinks real hard about what he what he wants and what his wish is. And he's thinking about his neighbor getting it uh, twice as much as him. And after a long, good thought, he looks at the genie and goes, take one of my eyes. And so this is, this is a psychoanalytic joke uh, that goes to show that 
oftentimes people are much are very willing to sacrifice their own their enjoyment right. if it means even less enjoyment for somebody else. Yeah. Right. And this is the thing. Like, there's a weird sense where you could say a lot of Trump supporters, for example. Oh, you, you know, it's easy to go, oh, they're just misled. They're misconceived. But in reality, the psychoanalytic thing uh, response would be, no, they elected Trump because they knew very well that it could mean worse situation for them. But they also think that it means a twice as bad situation for liberals. Exactly. Yeah. Relatable. Yeah. Exactly. And so that's where you start to get that it's so many ideologies. So acts or political events right so many of the happenings in politics really have to do with these unconscious libidinal speculations right like people aren't even aware they're really thinking like that because that's the whole point there's a logic of consciousness there's how we and for the most part at the conscious level of course pleasure self-interest all of that uh, kind of stuff is the main stuff where most of us would not at the conscious level say i'm trying to make my life worse <laughs> like well, and this is probably all, this. This is probably also why you know it's impossible to find consensus in a group of people, period. But especially when there's like a bipartisan or nonpartisan issue that's just like clearly for the the general good, and you know, well, I mean, obviously there's powered interests and such, but but you know, to be able to show, hey, we could work together sometimes, we probably actually, you know, it could also make you look good, right? But oh no, mm -hmm. like the thing is, is your constituency wants to see the other side suffer. We're gonna make them sit in their skin and suffer. We wanna make them sweat. You you wanna fucking, oh, like we could actually all come to a court on something and actually do something? No, 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 we gotta make them sweat. Yeah, which is, so which, which is why for me, I mean, just like, you know, I try like, uh, yeah, it's, it's a rough relationship with me and just like culture war in general. Cause it's like, it's so easy to get sucked into, but at the mm -hmm. same time, it's like, Oh my fucking God. Like, can we fucking actually see some material changes like immediately because we're about to go off a cliff here. Well, you know? and here's the thing, like I said, I want to get to these points at the end of the lecture. Um, I'm not going to go way into detail on these, but I, it's, it's important to have something to go on and we'll talk about, Jouissance or death drive on the right and death drive jouissance on the left because I think they operate differently um, on either side and that's part of the friction between them. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, I mean, to illustrate, there's that great example. It's a footnote in Nietzsche's On the Genealogy of Morals. But remember where Nietzsche quotes the uh, church father Tertullian? And he, he quotes Tertullian, and then he quotes uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, because both of them, if I remember correctly, they both discuss the same scenario, right? Which is, mm. the idea is that once, like, God comes, Jesus comes back, and Satan is defeated and everything, you know, the sinners go to hell, the saints go to heaven, and yet the, the people in heaven are going to watch the people in hell suffer. And... The uh, it's a weird thing, right? Because uh, Tertullian and Aquinas right. are sitting there. They're going, "How can we enjoy ourselves by seeing this horrible pain that other people are in?" And the theological twist is like, "Well, you're going to enjoy yourself by seeing God's justice realized." 
But, I mean, when you look at this in this libidinal way, no, you just are enjoying uh, the, uh, the other people who either called you stupid or enjoyed all, like, all the sexual passions that you as a Christian had to sacrifice, right? You're seeing all of them suffer, and you enjoy it, right? It's really a kind of libidinal fantasy of seeing the people who mocked you or made fun of you suffer. And so even though there's some part of you that's going to have suffering due to seeing them suffer, there's this other part of you that's just going to enjoy seeing them suffer. So it's like, yeah, I'm going to suffer in having to see them suffer, but there's another part of me that's just going to have immense enjoyment in seeing them suffer in hell. So I think that's a good example of showing how this kind of logic plays itself out. And one, and just an example for like how like an ignorance of these kinds of, of factors can lead to a sort of utopian approach to politics that kind of just it's going to be useless because it'll miss important factors about how people actually work it's like i used to kind of just be like oh you know football and all the other sports are just you know an expression of like toxic competition dynamics and uh, and like being like militarized and it's all a bunch of pop and pomp ceremony like circus where you know people can get behind like arbitrary fake identities and and like put all this energy into something that's not even real and it's a huge fucking waste of money and spectacle and people if they just direct that towards something that fucking mattered that'd be great and it's like Maybe, but also in every civilization that's been able to function at all, not in a complete state of chaos at every fucking moment, they found some way of giving the like the mob like a center of attraction that was meaningless, but yeah, that they but could here, still here's pump here's all that here's energy here's into because it's a way of like directing that in a way that's not going to like because if, if all those people directed their energy towards of uh, towards politics you don't know that they would actually become like like enlightened like democrat you know like you know they care about democracy all of a sudden no they would take all of that fucking hype that they're putting towards like red versus blue on the field and they would just all be putting that into their you know the king or, or whatever it is you know so in mcgowan's lecture on death drive mcgowan's a big sports junkie his example is exactly the one you bring up. Oh, really? His example is the reason why think about you know a sport like football especially, right? What sacrifice is essential to it. These guys just constantly sacrifice their body. We know especially like the the head trauma, the brain trauma that they're going through, they destroy their bodies. Um, it, it's almost the same you can even think about pro wrestling, right? What pro wrestlers put themselves through. Uh, it's insane they might have the most besides football players the most broken bodies of any anybody and yet whether you're talking about nfl fans or you're talking about wrestling fans they put immense effort in knowing the history knowing all about it like the commitment on the fans and the commitment on the football players and the wrestlers there's immense enjoyment precisely because it involves so much sacrifice and loss so much time and energy is sacrificed on meaningless activities. I mean, meaning, I'm not taking away if people like them. I, I'm not trying to be dismissive, but I mean, they're meaningless in the sense of they're not essential like politics or the economy or things like that. Like mm -hmm. the things that really enable us to maintain our material, material existence. They're just dumb activities, right? I mean, I'm guilty. Like I'm, you know, I'm a retro gamer. I'm, I have as many 
dumb activities I'm hooked on as anybody. So it's not dismissing theirs. The, but the point is, for McGowan, it's precisely because it involves so much sacrifice and so much loss that it is enjoyable. And it's all circles around something dumb and meaningless. Like, all of the activities we find the most enjoyable really are kind of stupid. Like um, diamonds? Say what? Like diamonds, right? Because we both watched well, that episode. Actually, we, yeah, we just, we both, we both have recently watched the, uh, there's a show on Netflix called Explained. And yeah. just, I just have to say, Netflix is doing some good documentaries right now. Yeah, um, yes. But there's unexplained. They do have a little documentary on diamonds and how the diamond industry came into being, and how the whole thing of like getting married involves a diamond ring and all that shit. Like they basically like, do the genealogy of it. Like, like just like the 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 value of a diamond was set arbitrarily by them like because it was monopoly it was monopolized in the first place and then when the monopoly was broken up they all just kept going by that anyway because they just knew that they could keep it at that level and make more money on the one hand but also that people wouldn't want the diamonds as much if they weren't if 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 the sign value if if what that if if that uh rock on on the on the ring did not say someone spent a two two months of their salary for this if it didn't say that then it wouldn't be worth anything so well, and think about it. the more you sacrifice it's a dumb it's it, it, it's a it's a dumb little object okay it sparkles and yet it means so much to people precisely because so much sacrifice i mean and the more money you blow on it the more money you waste on it the more it means to somebody right this is why waste is you know, Bataille is huge on this, and so is Marcel Moss and Baudrillard, that it's stupid to us that waste means so much, but it does. And that's, you know, in this case, they just happen to channel waste into this highly profitable capitalistic industry. Mm -hmm. But the idea of social bonds being formed through waste or sacrifice, that goes way back to pox potlatch societies that Marcel Moss was talking about. And so it's as if uh, DeBoer and the diamond industry just um, utilize it for its own sake. But there's a deep aspect in our libidinal economy of enjoying loss, enjoying the sacrifice, right? The only reason people enjoy the diamond ring is because so much money was sacrificed on it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so again, you know, they showed how we can make uh, essentially they're real diamonds they're just not made by the earth they we they make them in a machine and yet because they're cheap nobody even though they're basically the same material object nobody wants them and so and so you're this so this is, is supposed to tie back around to to jouissance is that what we're doing with this or or right because what well it ties back to death drive that death drive enjoys not or is sacrificing the object, losing the object, missing the object, getting like it enjoys the very act of you not getting what you want, right? Most people would say, I just want the money that I spent on the diamond because you can do so much practically with the money. Like the money can be used for all kinds of rational reasons, uh, uh, self interest, right? But then when you spend it on the diamond, it's like there's really nothing in your self interest. It doesn't make any sense, but there's immense enjoyment that people get from doing these kind of things and it has to do with death drive. Mm.
attempt to bring in new people to the world of philosophy and theory while building on relationships already established, we are doing a countrywide tour of the United States this fall. What's up, guys? It's Anna Dave. Are we coming to a city or a town near you? Do you think there is a venue or audience in your local region that would be interested in a lecture or facilitated discussion about existentialism, critiques of therapism, PMC ideology, self-help, introduction to philosophy, or the time-energy critique of any of those things? This speaking and discussion facilitation tour will include the Pacific Northwest in mid-August, the Kansas City, Missouri area late August or early September, Philadelphia at the beginning of October, and really we're going to be all over the area there, hopefully, so get in contact with us if you think that we should come visit your state. Phoenix, Arizona, mid-October, and SoCal, especially San Diego, late October. I say especially San Diego because we already have our guide for the San Diego region. What's the difference between a host, a guide, and a volunteer, you ask? Well, thanks for asking, actually. The volunteer role is for people who want to put up posters or in other ways promote the events that will be occurring in their town or city. Whereas the host might have a guest bedroom, guest house, or a place that we can park our van so we can sleep in our van. We need to know if you would have like bathroom facilities or anything like that. And so the form on the website is where you can tell us what you have to offer. Guiding on the other hand though, people who love to guide take a lot of pride in their local knowledge. A good example of that would be Michael Downs when I visited him in Raytown, Missouri, and he took me into Kansas City and we had barbecue and he took me to the mall and to all these other landmark places from his life growing up there. Um, but a more recent example would be my friend Michael in Poland who took us around Katowice, Poland and basically gives a historical and sociological analysis of everything and it was amazing. It was, it was one of the coolest things we've ever experienced and it made us realize some people just want to provide the space and privacy whereas other people want to take you out and show you around and so if you're interested in being a volunteer host or guide we have a special form for that so please fill out your information and uh, get in contact with us as soon as possible so we can fit you into the schedule because we'll love to meet you touch base with the local community and if you don't think anyone else in your area is interested in the things that you're interested in, if you don't think anyone else is into this stuff, well, we might be able to surprise you. When I saw that poster, Boldrillard in Boise fucking Idaho, are you kidding me? It was virtually an, an answer to an unspoken prayer, you know, really was. And I just couldn't believe that somebody was interested in the things that I was interested in that I had been interested in for years and had kind of given up on in, in futility. I'd labored in solitude for so long, I had no one to talk to about it, no one to bounce ideas off. This tour is going to bring together a lot of people who want to be based in text with the people they're in conversation with. and. Yeah, I think it's going to be a fantastic year. The only other thing that I want to say is that Michael Downs' first book is going to be published by Theory Underground really soon here. I've got another book coming out really soon here. These books will be spread throughout the United States on this tour. So I'm hoping to be able to do some actual 
book launch events at various bookstores. Outside of that, I guess the last thing that I would say is that Michael Downs is gearing up to teach For They Know Not What They Do by Slavoj Žižek. We're putting out all these introduction videos and other interviews related to the topic of Hegel, Lacan, Žižek because we want to give people an accessible and sturdy basis in the discourse. The problem is, is that Michael Downs is very busy having to work at a wage slave job. And so if you want to help in freeing Mikey, make sure to go to his Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the dangerous baby and make a donation. Thank you. I would be remiss to close this out without a quick shout out to our patrons and our anonymous donors. Thank you so much for the donations that already we've only been around for a month. We already got over $3,000 in donations. Um, and so thank you and uh, stay tuned for the app, which is on its way. There will be a Fury Underground app. So the current setup is that it is a social media site built around courses where you can suppose that people who are involved in the discussions have a shared interest in the same or similar texts and where you can assume in a lot of the discussions that, yeah, people have read the stuff that you're reading, uh, that you're bringing into dialogue. And so, uh, for instance, the idea of the university by Carl Jaspers, dedicated for him. Slavoj for they don't know what they do, dedicated for him. And then as people take the course over the years, new people will be coming into that forum. And so if you get in there early, you'll be able to see how the conversation evolves. And as new people add into the conversation, it'll bring back memories and like things that you want to work through, questions that you had with the first time that you read the text. And so I'm really excited for this. The reason I've built this website is because I think that this is what's lacking in so many other spaces, is that ability to return, to be able to communicate after the fact and in a sustained way on a platform that's not attention grabby and annoying like discord and so stay tuned because there is an app on the way thank you to our donors if you want to donate go to theory-underground.com forward slash support thank you